As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will be in verse 13 today. It's a very short verse we'll be looking at, but one that's very profound. and One that has a lot to say to us today. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Listen carefully because this is God's word for you today. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look at this passage together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to look into your law, for it is wonderful. This is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. And I ask that you would shine this light onto our hearts. May it guide our decisions, guide our lives, and guide our responses uh, to this world. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, typically, if you're going to be going through the Ten Commandments with someone, particularly if you're using the Ten Commandments to witness to someone, to show them how much they need a Savior, usually when you get to the Sixth Commandment, people will wipe their brow and be able to say, it's like, well, at least I've kept that one. I haven't killed anybody, so I at least am able to say I've kept the Sixth Commandment. I'll admit those first two were difficult, trying to say that the the Lord God is going to be number one in my life and everything is directed towards the worship of God. That's a pretty difficult one. The not making of idols, we thought that all that had to do was just forming something out of stone or wood, but finding out we can make a false God in our minds, well, that's a really hard commandment to keep as well. And when we look into the third commandment, not using God's name in vain, more than just using the word God in the place of a curse word, but in the ways in which we speak about God, if we are irreverent about those things, that we find that this is a commandment easily broken too. The fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath day holy, setting aside time to worship, something that Americans find a tremendous difficulty to do most weeks. And then the fifth commandment of honoring fathers and mothers and governments and those in authority over us. All of these things are very difficult to keep. But surely we would think, Not murdering someone should be pretty easy to do. This is not something one tends to slip into, uh, but something that takes a little bit of time to meditate on and to accomplish. But what we'll find here, as we find with all of these commandments, is even the sixth commandment has something for us to listen to. Though, I hope... None of us here have wielded a knife or a gun and taken someone else's life. I stand with a great deal of confidence in saying that all of us have broken the sixth commandment. Because there's more to it than just thou shalt not murder. This is a very, very short commandment. Only two words in the original Hebrew. And it is meant to be a wide-ranging commandment that has, stuff, that has something to say not only to the not taking of life, but as we read in our shorter catechism question earlier this morning, that it has to do with the preserving of life as well. So we're going to look at our two points today. We don't have an outline for you today. Uh, it's a late substitution. 
But if you just want to write this down on the back of your prayer guide, if you want to keep along, the two points that we're going to be looking at today is that we are freed to protect life. That's number one. We are freed to protect life. And then number two, we are freed to provide for life. Freed to provide for life. That's what we're looking at in these commandments today. So let's take a look at freed to protect. The ESV translates this as best as it can when we take a look at this word as thou shalt not murder. You might be more familiar with the King James Version that would say thou shalt not kill, which is something that we're used to hearing about but has led to some questions. It's like, well, what does it mean to not kill? Does this mean that we cannot use lethal self-defense? Does this mean that professions like the military are out? What is this talking about? And I think the ESV is doing its best here as it's trying to capture you shall not murder as the idea of a premeditated, hateful slaughtering of another human being. And that captures this quite well. Though the word that's used here is a bit more complex. The word that's used here, translated murder, is also translated in other passages, which we'll look at briefly, as manslaughter. So meaning the accidental killing of someone. So let's take a look at what this means. This is, I think, talking about the, um, the, the motive is what's making the crime. If you'll turn with me, we're going to be in a lot of different scripture passages today, so keep your Bibles open or your Bible apps ready to scroll. Interesting, going back to scrolls, but uh, yeah, sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Turn there with me, if you will. Deuteronomy 19. While this word that can be, that is translated murder, does have quite a wide range of how it can be interpreted, the Bible does make distinctions and makes a different level of what the uh, reaction to this depends on the crime and how that was committed. Look at Deuteronomy 19. The context here is Moses is talking about cities of refuge. So if you had accidentally killed somebody, instead of, in that culture, there was someone appointed in the family that was called the avenger of blood, who would go and kill you back as a means of punishment. But the Lord had set up these cities of refuge where you could flee, and the avenger of blood could not enter into that city to kill you. And that's the context here. So look here in Deuteronomy 19, read verses 4 through 6. This is the provision for the manslayer, same word, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally. Though, and this is critical, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Slip down to verse 10, and he's talking about that we don't want to do these things lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So listen to what he's stating here. If there is an absence of malice in, in this killing of somebody, that this was called innocent blood. 
The person was one who could flee to these cities because he was, in fact, innocent of murder. And then note how the Bible makes the difference here in verse 11. That's manslaughter looking at murder. Verse 11 of chapter 19. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Here, the innocent blood is the person who was murdered. And now the murderer can't use the cities of refuge to try to escape his punishment. But what's the difference? The difference is the motive. The one who didn't hate, who accidentally killed somebody, they were innocent. But the one who murdered who hated them in his heart, that sounds familiar, that was was rendered as guilty. Now, this doesn't mean that manslaughter had no consequences. As we find out in other passages, like I think it's uh, the second to last chapter of Numbers, Numbers 35 or 37, I think, where there was a, when you went to that city of refuge, you couldn't leave. If you left the city of refuge and the avenger of blood found you, he could kill you and would face no consequences. You had to stay in that city until the high priest of that year had died. And only then you could leave that city of refuge. This points to the fact that God cares about life a lot. Yes, God makes allowances for accidents and mistakes. It's a fallen world. Sometimes axe heads do, in fact, slip. And tragedies happen. But that person would then still lose their ability to live in their hometown. They would have to leave everything they knew. There were still consequences for that. One couldn't use negligence as an excuse. Life is precious. But the difference between capital punishment and being able to live in an alternate city is that motive of hate. That really brings into crystal clear element of what Jesus was talking about from Matthew 5. Remember our New Testament reading? Where he says, you heard it said by them of old that you shall not kill, but I say to you, you shall not hate in your heart. Jesus wasn't making up something new. It's right here in Deuteronomy 19. Anger in the heart is what made the difference. So Jesus is bringing down to, the, to where this commandment has always been. This is the fullest extent of what this commandment has always gotten to. So, so we know it's shall not murder, shall not kill. But what about those self-defense questions? What happens if you suddenly find yourself needing to defend your life or you find yourself in the military? What does the scripture say about these things? We won't spend a ton of time on these, but I will point you uh, to a couple of passages. One, since it's just one page over, look into Exodus 22. This refers to self-defense. And it actually demonstrates that you can indeed use lethal self-defense to defend yourself. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 22, verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in, breaking into your house, and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But there's a limit, what it says in verse 3. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. 
What it's saying here is if someone is trying to break into your house in the middle of the night, you have, you're likely asleep, you've been woken up, and you're suddenly you're presented with this threat. And you are able to take whatever means you need to in order to defend your family, including the taking of this intruder's life. But if it's in the middle of the day and you can see it coming, someone's trying to do a smash and grab of your stuff in your hut, you weren't allowed to kill him for that. There was limits on what one could do. Indeed, the whole point here is God is going to repeatedly make this point over and over again is that life is a precious thing. This is something that needs to be defended at all costs, including preserving of your own life, but making this as an absolute method of last resort when needed. Well, what about soldiers in war? We actually covered this. Uh, well, this would have been a couple years ago now uh, as we looked into the early part of Luke, Luke chapter 3. If you remember way back in Luke chapter 3 when John the Baptist is preaching in Luke chapter 3 verse 14, telling these people to repent of their sins. And then in verse 14, soldiers come up to him and they soldiers also asked him and said, and we, what shall we do? Asking, what does our repentance look like? And what does he say to them? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Notice he doesn't say, well, you have to get out of the military. Remember, this is the Roman government. But he's telling them that they don't have to leave. Military service is something that is acceptable. Well, we won't get in on into all the nuanced points of just war, if uh, we are fighting in a defensive conflict, if there is something where we are dealing with a, with, a, with a legitimate threat, then military service is more than acceptable for the Christian. That's why we in the PCA are, have so many chaplains in our military. We want to reach out to our military service members. This is something that is allowed, and if, there is, if one kills, assuming one is doing so with justice, not just committing war crimes or something, but that this is not a breakage of this sixth commandment as we see here in the scriptures. But this does finally get us to ask this question. You know, why are we going through all of these things? Isn't the sixth commandment just obvious? Isn't it? Why would we need to have this discussion? Almost everyone is going to say that murder is wrong. Well, as Kevin DeYoung in his book had, had asked the question, well, why? we were to say, why is murder wrong, what answer would we give? We could give the, well, just because. Of course it's wrong. It's obvious, isn't it? Or we could try to go with a societal argument and say, well, society generally runs better when we're not killing each other. But is that the best that we can do? Can we, can go, we can do better as we look into what life is. The reason why we don't murder we actually find in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And in here, it's actually referring to why the Lord had instituted capital punishment. In Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by a man shall his blood be shed. For or because God made man in his own image. We as fellow human beings are made in the image of God. And when we take life, we are taking the life from an image of God. And God takes that very, very seriously. That's why he reserves this punishment for this crime. And capital punishment is, is, re, is reaffirmed in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4. We won't go there, but that's just something just to, just to write down. The Lord views murder very seriously. If you take a life, your life will be taken. This is something that is the taking of life is punished by God. And that's because life is provided from God. We saw that all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God, when God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Life coming from God. We tend to forget that. Life is not just some biological consequence that crawled its way out of a mud puddle a million years ago. Life is something that God has breathed into this world and comes from him. And we can see that life is not only started by God, but it continues to be preserved by God. You'll look at Acts chapter 17. And Paul is speaking. And he's speaking in the Areopagus. Starting in verse 24 of Acts 17. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Life comes from God. It is a gift. And when we take it, as Kevin DeYoung put it, we try to stand in the place of God. Whenever we kill without God's sanction, we stand in God's place. Now, what is God's sanction? We see this capital punishment put into the sword being given into the hands of the government. Romans 13 and Genesis 9. Capital punishment is something that comes out of the scriptures and is meant to show the heinousness of murder. This is what this commandment forbids. It forbids the taking of life unjustly. But there's a second part to the command. We hinted at this in our catechism. We've mentioned it already. But is the command to provide for life, to do as best as we can to preserve it. That's point number two, is freed to provide for life. 
As we look into when Jesus was asked what were the greatest commandments, the second one that he mentioned was love of neighbor. And love of neighbor encompasses far more than just not killing him. As we once again jump back into Luke, we remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. When others were passing by this poor man who was beaten half to death and left on the side of the road, the Good Samaritan got off of his beast of burden and did everything he could to preserve this man's life at great cost to himself. This was not an easy thing to do. The fact that he was a Samaritan and this person nearby was Jewish, this was helping out an enemy as well. The Jews and Samaritans didn't get along so well. But this man was made in the image of God and did everything he could to preserve his life. This also will look like forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22 Peter is asking Jesus, how many times will I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Which seems like a lot. But then Jesus goes on and says, 70 times seven. Now, he's not capping it at 490. But what he's trying to tell you is, is that this, this, this is forgiveness that, that continues and extends. This is a care for life and its preservation. If you can look with me into Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs 24, verse 11, tells us to rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. Here, the commandment, again, we we see pointing back to this concept of preserving of life. But now... This raises the question, what about end-of-life issues? Does this mean if we find ourselves in a position where we're being preserved by hospital equipment, do we need to try to keep, stay on it as long as we possibly can and extend that? Should we try to do this for our family members who are unable to respond? How do we work through these issues? I think giving a blanket response to something that complex and case-by-case case is not helpful. But I would say that this is this has, this is very very complex issue, and can sometimes there will be each each case is going to be different from each case is going to be different from from the other. So I would say, while there are ever those issues that come up in the life of our congregation, I'll be more than happy to help you help you think through those things along with a doctor or two as we consider what would be the what is the best hope for the preservation of life. I don't think as one. Um, commentator put it that this means that we need to try to extend the dying process as long as possible. I don't think that's necessarily what this commandment is calling for. But I think we need to be careful in a culture that will value the, the hastening of, 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 of death that we be very careful as we evaluate those things. So again, that's a, that's a case-by-case issue, so I will, I will simply leave it at that. But as, we call, as we're called to preserve life, there was something that the larger catechism had brought out that I hadn't noticed before. And I think this might give us a, a fair bit of honor into the jobs that we have. One way that we preserve life, is, is it puts it, is through careful studies. 
And one thing that it mentions through this is the study and advancement of medicine, advancement of science, or the advancement of communication devices, so that we're able in times of crises, we're able to better communicate with, with, with one another and direct resources to those things. Those that are involved in safety. Well, oftentimes in factories, the safety guy is the one that gets scorned the most in his office. But this work is important. It's about the preserving of life. Those that will work in law enforcement or first responders. You're upholding the sixth commandment by doing your work. Those that work in public health, sanitation. All of these things are important and have a divine call from the Ten Commandments to do your work. This brings a tremendous honor to it. And it goes down even further than that. Of promoting our, of our own peace, calming our minds. For those of us like myself that spend a lot of time with anxiety and unpeaceful thoughts, I'm, I'm, tend, I'm tending to shorten my own life by doing that. This commandment calls me to have a life that, is, that finds its peace and its mind in God so that I extend my own life. See how comprehensive this thing is? It's not just whether or not someone is dying, but your diet. This speaks to all of life. And then, of course, most poignantly, will speak to a national issue that we have been working for for the last 50 years out of the overturning of the legalization of abortion. Obviously, this fits into both sides of this commandment. We are to preserve life, to protect it from being taken, but also to provide for it when it comes. This has been something contrary to calls that we've seen a lot on social media and implying that people have not been at work in these areas to help out poor mothers or to help out those that have been struggling with this the church has been doing that for the last 50 years. Uh, we're sorry that those on social media haven't noticed that. Perhaps it's time for them to join us as we work. But this is something that we are to continue to do. But one thing we also want to keep in mind, and this requires a pastoral tone. There have been, enough, I have people in my life that have had abortions. Some because they were lied to. This was in the 70s and 80s when they were told that this was just a clump of cells and wasn't human life. And that was a horrible, vicious, demonic lie. And some, unfortunately, were taken by that. Some knew what they were doing and did this anyway and took this life. But what I want you to hear today, as we've very clearly seen from the commandment that that was absolutely a terrible evil and a sin, but what Jesus tells us is that there is redemption that's for that. Jesus can forgive the one who has had an abortion, the one, the abortionist. The Lord is able to forgive them both. And this is something that I want us to make sure that we are proclaiming very loudly as we bring this gospel. And this also doesn't mean it's like, well, you can just find forgiveness, but, there's, but you'll be a second-class Christian all your life. That's not true either. The Lord has made great use of many murderers in redemptive history. Some names you might even recognize, like Moses, David, and Paul. All of these guys were murderers. But the Lord used them as well 
to do great things for the church. One's life is not over because they've ended someone else's life. We actually even see in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37, when Peter is preaching to the crowds, he talks about the Lord of life, which you crucified. Talking to these people who killed Jesus. And they said, what can we do? Did Peter said, well, sorry, you committed the ultimate sin. You're out. It's not what he says at all. He says to repent and put your trust in Christ and you will be forgiven. That's who Jesus pursues. Jesus pursues failures. I actually heard a wonderful sermon on Wednesday in General Assembly. And the pastor had talked about the time when Jesus met the disciples. This was after his resurrection. And meets and cooks breakfast for them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he notes that those disciples were told to stay in Jerusalem. They were out at the Sea of Galilee, 70 miles away. What were they doing way out there? Scriptures don't say. Perhaps they were fleeing their own shame. But where do we find Jesus? Right there. We go bring him back. And that's exactly what he does. And he cooks a meal and invites fellowship with them. And he offers the same to you too. If you're within the sound of my voice, either here in this room or watching online or listening to our podcast afterward, if you have had an abortion. Jesus can forgive you too. Jesus can restore you. As hard as that is for you to believe. It's hard for all of us to believe that our sins and failures can be forgiven, but they can be. Because Jesus died on the cross. The Son of God paid your fine. He died on the cross. He died for all of the people that both caused and allowed abortions to happen. Took all that sin on himself. All the wrath of God justly aimed at us for doing that. Was put on Christ and can be forgiven. I remember my aunt used to be a part of a a pregnancy resource team. And they were trying to illustrate the verse from the Bible that says that the Lord... um, puts our sins as far away as the east is from the west, and he will will remember them no more. And they're trying to emphasize that, and they had a video of this little child who comes up into heaven, and he looks up at God. He had been an aborted child and had said, why am I here? And God looks down at him, and he says, I don't remember, and welcomes him into heaven, trying to communicate the idea that the, the woman's sin had been put out of God's mind. And while I appreciate that effort, the truth is actually much better than that. What that word remember means is not saying that God deletes it out of his brain. He can't do that. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. But when it says that it won't remember it, he means that he knows it, but he's promised to not act on it. That's the ultimate of forgiveness. God knows exactly what we've done. Knows it to the horrible details. But he chooses to forgive you anyway. You're not going to surprise God by saying, like, oh, this person was way worse than I thought. No, God knows everything. God is not surprised by anything that you do. And he loves you anyway. And that is a beautiful thing.
And that's what I want us to proclaim to this world. But what about those of us who, by God's grace, this has not been a part of our life? What does this commandment have to tell us? Well, of course, as we remember from Matthew chapter 5, for those that are angry at other people, this commandment is broken by our anger. For me, I break the sixth commandment a lot in traffic. Driving on 280, much occasion for sin. We, need, we all have some form of anger problem to deal with. And it's restrained by that sixth commandment. Don't murder people in your hearts, in your cars. But it may also be, as Jen Wilkin has pointed out, spend less time with people that she, she comes with a wonderful term, is called anger merchants. People who are out selling anger. Those that are on television or on social media, those of us that will follow some things because we're just, we need our good dose of anger. We find ourselves spending a lot of time with that. That's probably something that we would do better to leave alone. As we see in James 1, 19 and 20, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's not how our culture works. Our culture tries to sell us anger. Because if you can get angry, then you don't feel like part of the problem. And if you answer quickly, you don't have to account for how we have contributed to the issue, whatever that issue may be. So as you go out from here today, think about what you're consuming. Think about what it's doing in your mind. Think about what this might be leading you to do. A, 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 a redeemed heart is not looking for things to be angry with, but is looking for, for people to bring the gospel to. Does this mean we can't be angry at sin? No. We can be angry at the things that God is angry with. But God has provided a solution for sin. So as long as we can do something about it, let's do something about it. Bring the gospel to a lost and dying world and show that forgiveness and peace can be found all the way down to the heart level. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this command that you've given to us. An opportunity to remember that you are in control and that nothing escapes your notice. We don't have to be angry or afraid of things, which is often where anger comes from, because we can trust in you. So I ask that as we go here today, that we would take this gospel that has forgiveness even for murderers, forgiveness even for angry people, forgiveness for abusive people, and reconciliation to those that have been lost. Lord, we ask for transformation for these people. That we would not say, well, the Lord has forgiven me of my anger, but I'll just continue to keep doing it. But I pray that we would lean into this gospel so that we can be freed from these things and rejoice one day that you will set all things right. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.